All right. Well, hey, friends, welcome back to the podcast. We have my friend Michael Hidalgo with us today, who is the pastor at Denver Community Church. Michael, do you have like, um, is your title pastor or do you have some like fancy, like futurist, (laughs) dreamer, creative architect of of the church space sort of title? It is just pastor. (laughs) Just pastor. Okay. Yeah. All right. So pastor at Denver Community Church, and um, and your name came up actually when I was talking to another friend the other day, and he said, oh, I want to meet Michael someday because I feel like he's the patriarch of the post-evangelical church. <laughs> that, so that's that's how I've been thinking of you lately. Is No is pressure. You're the, you're the patriarch in this space, and uh, and I've been talking to some friends who are leading in some sort of way in this space lately just to help help people get a little picture of what the post-evangelical church is, what's kind of going on in this church space. And so um, I thought I would uh, start with you by asking a little bit about like understanding your own faith journey, because you host a podcast, great podcast uh, called the the Changing Faith Podcast. And um, so obviously there's there's like an experience of changing faith. So I'd love to know a little bit of like, what was your kind of changing faith story? Yeah. Um, well, first, thanks for having me on. It's fun to, fun to be here with you um, and meet your listeners. I grew up in an extremely fundamentalist household. Uh, mm-hmm. My parents were incredibly legalistic, and I f- actually feel liberty to speak about it because there was a season in their own lives where they evolved, changed, grew, however you want to say it, and several times apologized to us because they were doing their best. And I point that out because even in talking about this, it's not negative or pejorative. Um, it's just the reality of the world I grew up in. And what began to happen for me is I've always, I just have a curiosity streak in me. And I began to, around middle school, high school, ask some questions about things that didn't make sense. And as often happens in more fundamentalist settings, questions are not welcomed. And that made me suspicious. Because to me, I thought, if they have all of the answers, then why can't I ask the questions? You should be able to answer any question I'm asking. And so it began to fall apart for me, but uh, I went off to college and I fell in with a group of guys and all of us had this sense of, we weren't huge fans of the church. We weren't huge fans of Christian organizations, even though we were at at that time at a Christian college. Um, But we all had this uh, appreciation for respect, as I, w- I would describe it back then, of, for Jesus. And that's, I think, what has tethered me for hmm. really, I would say, throughout my faith journey. And so we decided maybe we should read the Bible for ourselves and see what's there. And I, being a contrarian, thought like, well, let's read the, the prophets. We've, I've never heard the prophets talked about. And up until that point, I thought the prophets were genuinely about like, don't have sex and don't worship idols. And idols are a metaphor in our world for materialism and consumerism. And when I began reading them, I was blown away by their conversations around justice, their conversations around the poor, their conversations around what is what does it really look like to live out this God-shaped life in our world, which is what the people of Israel were called to do. And it really, I would kind of lit a fire underneath me of like, like, well, if 
if this is in here, then what else have I not been told? And rather than reject it, again, I got more curious about why is this stuff been ignored? And it sent me into a place where right after college, I began working with uh, homeless people, working and walking alongside people coming out of drug addiction as a mentor. And it was the proximity with the vulnerable that really began to reshape my understanding of Jesus and the way that he lived and operated while he was here on this earth. And that was kind of the trajectory uh, right after college. And then the other piece to that is my parents introduced me to a young pastor at their church, and he and I began spending time together. And he handed me a book one day um, by Dallas Willard, The Divine Conspiracy. And it completely reoriented the way that I thought about what does it mean to, to be a Christian? And so those, that's some of the trajectory. I'll leave it there if you have any other questions uh, that started me, probably around the age of 22, 23 years old. Okay. Um, I I don't know if we've talked about this before. Divine Conspiracy changed my life also. Hmm. And the number of people that that's true of is so fascinating to me who fit in this space or who are a bit adjacent to this space. I know um, uh, Brian Zond, if you pay attention to him at all. Um, we had Brian out when I was at Parkcrest and um, Divine Conspiracy is the book that sent him on his journey as well. Um, yeah, it, it's fascinating. What what was it about for you, the Divine Conspiracy? Like what were some of the things that it originally sparked in you that you hadn't been hearing in your sort of upbringing? I was going to ask you the same question. <laughs> I'll ask it as a follow-up. Okay. You know, for me, faith growing up, was believing the right things and behaving the right way. And looking back, it felt somewhat arbitrary that if I, and by the way, it was in that order, believing the right things was number one, behaving the right way was number two, because I was reared in a world where one of the influential theologians said, and it's, if this is not a direct quote, it's pretty close. um, The gospel is about not the years of your life here on earth, but about where you will spend eternity. And so everything for me was that, you know, great beyond after death. And I also happened to not be very good at obeying rules in the context where I grew up. So I I just lived my whole existence was, in the words of Richard Rohr, a cautious standoff with an angry deity, where when I read Divine Conspiracy, it was an invitation into life now. It was an understanding for the first time when people would say, like, I want to be more like Jesus. I never cared to be because it didn't really matter um, because I had prayed the prayer. And sure, I could behave better, but that's really not, you know, that's not the thing that's going to keep me in or out of heaven. Yeah. But this all of a sudden invited me into a life to, it was the first time I heard language about patterning my life after Jesus. Yes. Of beginning to read the gospels and go, oh my goodness, if this is what he said and this is what he taught, and these are the people he's befriending, and if he's really blurring the lines around religion and rules, and there's gotta be more here. And it compelled me toward and led me toward really wanting to understand not only the heart of Jesus, but it led me into study of his context in the um, second temple period Judaism and first century Judaism and what he was doing. And, um, 
it just, it was like a rabbit hole that by the way, I'm still going down. It's not like I've figured Jesus out. Um, nor do I want to, or I think we can, but I think that was the biggest, biggest part of it is it turned into a way of living versus just a mental ascent to a few random theological points. And yeah. that's what really reoriented my life. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting as you say that, cause I think like that seems to be one of the things that starts to shift for us is that, um, the movement away from faith being something about like what happens, some like metaphysical arrangement that of what happens to us after we die. And like Willard would talk about the gospel of sin management that we yes. trust Jesus to just sort of like um, wipe away our sins in order to be this ticket to get into heaven after we die, that he is the right answer on the quiz that gets us through the gates. And that as a result of that, like his life really has no relevance because his death is all that has relevance. And then our life mm -hmm. really has no relevance other than making sure that we've prayed a prayer, said the right words, and that we've got our ticket to heaven after we die. And um, his whole orientation of first, like, well, the gospel, like Jesus's gospel is repent for the kingdom of God is near. So if that's his gospel, like, what does it mean that the kingdom of God is near? And I had been in church my whole life and I had never once heard a sermon on the kingdom of God. I had never once been taught anything about it. I had always, yeah. I guess, made assumptions. The kingdom of God was what happens to me after I die. It's some sort of vague reference to an eternal heaven. And um, I'd always assume that. And yet it's the predominant thing in Jesus's teaching. And Willard, Willard like had this like thing that shifted for me of like, oh, like this matters a lot, which... Yeah, in the same sort of way, move me into like, oh, the patterning my life after Jesus matters, patterning my life around the Sermon on the Mount matters significantly. And not only is it like, it's not, in fact, it's not like this religious thing that I do. Instead, it's actually a better way to live. It's actually yes. a more true way to live. Yes. Um, and I think it, so. And then the thing with Willard for me was not just the content of what he was saying, but it was the posture of how he's saying it. And so he would say, and I think he even says this in Divine Conspiracy, that if there's a better way to live, Jesus would be the first one to to tell you to do that thing. Yeah. So it was like, if if his way wasn't working, if his way wasn't a better way to live, and he's like, oh, that's actually better. Like, stop stop listening to me and pay attention to that. There's something so open-handed about that that um, mm. was really, really compelling. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, one of the comments I heard early on. Um, it was from Will Williman, who at that point was the dean of the chapel at Duke University. Okay. Yeah. He said, if the gospel you're preaching doesn't get you killed, you're probably preaching the wrong thing. <laughs> and I wrote it down. I don't, I, and I had this sense of, I don't know what that means yet. <laughs> Yeah. But I think when you're talking about this best way to live, you know, when Jesus, th this good news he's proclaiming includes things like pick up your cross, that you're going to undergo what I'm going to undergo. And you made a comment in there that is leading me to think about this, that so often we, we think like, oh, Jesus paid it all. I mean, that's a song that we sing and all to him I owe. But, but as I've dove in deeper and deeper and deeper into his life and his words as recorded in the gospels, Jesus seems to be saying, no, 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 no. I'm showing you how you're going to do it. 
Hmm. And as a matter of fact, it's better that I leave. This is from John. Yep. And I'm going to send the spirit so that you'll be empowered to do what I'm doing. And I think that that's the gospel that I'll get you killed of stop praying and for Jesus to do something because Jesus could very well could be looking at you saying, I've taught, taught you what to do. Yeah. You go and do it. Yeah. Um, and that's been a huge shift. You know, when even around election time, I had somebody text me and say, I'm just trusting Jesus. And I was thought to myself, that might be a cop out um, because it can very subtly allow us to do nothing. And I think yeah. Jesus was about inviting us to do something. Yeah, I like that so much. And even as like, you know, Willard invited you to dive into first century context and same for me, like it led into those sorts of rabbit holes. And one of the things that that I began to discover was that like Jesus was very concerned with life and first century mm -hmm. Judaism was very concerned with life, had very like few concerns with afterlife. Like there's not a robust, right, Jewish understanding of the afterlife. But um, but like later sort of like we sort of like develop that. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I have for so long flipped this. And my faith has been so much about what happens to me after I die. And I have missed the beauty of the kind of life that that I'm called and created to live into. And that had this yes. fundamental sort of shift that happened. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you're having these shifts going on in you. Willard messes you up as he has messed so many of us up. And, um, and you, you come out of college and in your early twenties sort of thinking that way, were you, were you a, a pastor at that point? Did you ever, cause I don't, I don't really know. You don't really fit in a box, right? In the way that, that you sort of fit within the larger sort of church landscape. That's why we're making a new box. Cause you know, we need to fit you <laughs> into something. Um, <laughs> Were you at any point like an evangelical pastor? Were you up getting people to pray a prayer and to, um, you know, did you fit in that box ever? Well, I think it was three or four years after college. I went back for our homecoming weekend and I played sports in college, um, soccer. And I ran into our former, my former athletic trainer who said to me, Hey, I heard you're a pastor. And it was clear he was asking for clarification because there was no way that I was. <laughs> and when I told him, yeah, I am, he laughed and said, I honestly thought you'd end up in jail. So I don't know what that means, but when you ask, was I ever, like, was I a pastor at this point? I'll just leave you with that little anecdote to figure it out. <laughs> um, but no, I think, you know, that one of my greatest gifts was my first job in the church was with a guy named Ed Dobson. And if he was still living, he would say no relation to James Dobson, even though they had a good relationship, by the way. Um, and he opened the door, cracked the door all the time for exploration, questions, challenge. Um, and he was, I, I can't say enough about him. Like without him, I'm, I, I'm not at least on your podcast. So thanks to Ed for getting me on your podcast, I guess. Hey, but thanks, um, so I was given a pretty, a, you know, as a brand new guy, I think I was 23 when I started working with him, something like that, maybe 24. I can't even remember now, but um, I was given a lot of permission with him to push and to ask questions. And there was a boundary there for sure. Um, 
And that was a beautiful thing because there was a, there was a lot of, I felt empowered as a very young, unproven, inexperienced pastor who, by the time I got hired, I think I had preached like two sermons, you know? Um, but I also had a sense of if this guy is, is still learning and growing and challenging. And Ed was a little bit in his day, he challenged the system in some ways. Um, it gave me a great confidence, honestly, in who I understood God to be. Um, Ed said to me one time, just remember, you're never going to ask a question that'll surprise God. And huh. so for me, I was like, oh, okay, well, I can do that. And I've, I've held on to that, that I don't, I mean, if, if you read through the text, there's some brutal honesty, especially in the Psalms. You know, when they're saying like, God, are you deaf? God, where are you? God, why have you forsaken me? Which is Jesus's quote. Those questions are accusatory. They're not saying, it feels like you're not listening to me, but I know right. by faith that you are. It's my experiences, you're nowhere. And so that's kind of how I was brought into, the, into this industry, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, and I was mentored in that, which I, I to this day, um, I'm so deeply grateful for, for that. And not only Ed, but my first office there was four office doors I could see when I stood in my doorway, and it represented over 130 years of experience in the local church. And all of those doors were open to me anytime I wanted. That all of those pastors were like, "Man, we love what you're doing." So I, I was, I was given an incredible gift right from the start. Yeah, the Ed Dobson connection is so fascinating to me um, because for for our listeners who don't know, like Ed, Ed. And tell me if I'm wrong on this. He helped start the moral majority with Jerry Falwell, right? Like he was Jerry's <laughs> right hand during all of that. He ends up later kind of like rejecting what the moral majority had become and, and wrote a book about it. Um, but Ed, Ed mentored some really great people, like not only you, but Rob Bell. Mm-hmm. And I think of what's fascinating to me is that you guys have in a lot of ways, I never got to meet Ed, um, which is a disappointment because I've heard so many incredible things about him, but it seems to me that you guys have moved beyond where Ed was at. Um, maybe in some ways in the way that you think about the church in the way that you think about, uh, theology, but he in some sort of way mentored you to be able to do that. Is that a, is that a fair statement? Yeah. Yeah. Ed, Ed gave a, I would say it this way, he gave me a compass, not a roadmap. He pointed like me that. in a direction, almost like an idea of, I mean, to use, I'm sitting here, if I look out my window the right way, I'll actually see the mountains. Um, and I felt like Ed, the, we, he and I were together a year before his death um, back in Michigan. I went and visited him. And um, the image that I have in my head of him is, was like, we're looking at these mountains. He knows he's not going to get there, but he had this confidence and it was this really tender time together where I knew he had given me everything I, everything I needed to get to those mountains. And he knew he had, but he also knew I'm not going there with you. Um, and I, I can honestly say I have a deep sense pretty often that like, yeah, I think Ed's, I think Ed would be proud of me. Hmm. Um, and he's like, he's a, he's a father figure to me still is. Um, so yeah, but he did, he's the one who opened up to 
you know, the, the Hebrew scriptures and the Jewish way of thinking and that there's more to this story. Ed was friends with people from all different denominations, and I got to meet all these people. He was a part of the interfaith group in Grand Rapids long before that was like a cool thing to be a part of. He was invested in long-term and had deep relationships in the black community in Grand Rapids. And there's actually one of the videos he made before his death. It's the black community talking about how they felt when a white boy showed up named Ed. And they had seen so many white people walk through their doors before, but Ed stayed and he was faithful. So there were so many things he lived that were an example and so many ways he taught that were like, again, looking back, I can see it at the moment. I didn't realize, but he was equipping me um, and others, as you mentioned, not just Rob. There's a lot of people that that have uh, been mentored by him, and that's his legacy. That's that's, that's so cool. That's rad. Um, well, I would love to shift a little bit into your church now. So you've been yeah. at Denver Community Church for, for how many years now? Uh, it'll be f- 14 next year, so 13 plus. 14. Dang. So you've been there a long time. And when you came to DCC, it was originally a part of a denomination mm-hmm. and you led it to transition out of that denomination. Maybe, maybe we could start there. What was like, why did you feel the need to make that transition for the church? Yeah. Well, we were really loosely affiliated with this denomination and is actually, as I understand it, more of an association. Sure. I never grew up around denominations, so I don't, I don't know them well. And when I first came, part of the commitment I made to the leadership at Denver Community Church was that I would pursue ordination. And it was, there's a whole backstory to that, but that was one of the things we agreed on. And so when I met with the district superintendent of this association to talk about um, this ordination, he, the first thing he said was, well, what's your opinion of end times theology? And (laughs) I was a little bit caught off guard and he was pretty stern. So I thought, well, I'll bring some levity to the conversation. So I said, well, I'm a pan millennialist. And he said, I don't know what that means. I said, I think it's all going to pan out in the end. And he didn't laugh. And I was like, oh, this is, <laughs> uh, this is not going well. So he said, well, if you're not a pre-millennial, um, then don't even bother applying. So that right away there was a little bit of a fissure with this young church because DCC at that point was only six years old, I think. Six years old, for sure. Um, and so it was kind of like a little bit of, cr- of a crack there. Like, wait, why would you... Like, we're excited about this new pastor and he's excited to be here. And so we took some time to evaluate over the course of years and recognized it felt more like the people that we got to know were great hearted, but the association was set up more like it felt like an insurance, um, an insurance group. Like if, if everything goes wrong in the church, you can call it them in and there'll be this objective group and to, to recognizing our church before I came hit a major, major crisis with their founding pastor. And that association is the reason why the church survives. So they, they hmm. do an incredible work, but for us, we kept going, I'm not sure we're, we're lining up with them. Um, when I came, women were not empowered to lead or to preach. And that changed rather quickly when I came. And we became one of a very few number of churches in that organization or association that that were in that place. So there was a lot of things that we began going, this is not, 
we're not, we're not connecting. We're, we're not, it, it doesn't seem to benefit them or us for us to stay a part of it. And that was really what led to really an amicable departure for us. Um, and like I said, there's a lot of things that they gave to us over the years that we're grateful for, but it didn't seem to connect uh, the longer that I was there. Sure. So at some point it became like this, this thing is like constraining us more than it's actually helping us. It's constraining us theologically. Um, maybe even like, I think they have like methodological, like ways that the church has to operate as well. Don't they? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. They, so they referred up... to me one time as the, they said, you're the king. And I was like, oh no, that's, <laughs> I've seen that go poorly almost every time. So there was, yeah, methodology, theology, um, and so, yeah, we, we, we parted ways several years ago. That's interesting. I mean, all these things, they always come up out of like, there's good reasons, right? Like if we were to go back in history that when probably when, when they sprung up, there was some sort of like reason that they needed to think of the pastor in that sort of a way and that it made sense. And then that just sort of like gets solidified in some sort of way that it now no longer allows for new thought or new expression or questioning of the model itself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a, your point is a hundred percent in, as I see it valid and true. And I think when I'm thinking about people who listen and even myself, I think it's important for us to remember that because I sense with a lot of ambition, eagerness, zeal, um, earnestness that so many of us, me included think, well, we're going to create something. It's not going to become that. And I'm like, no, I think it will in time if we, you know, if we're not holding it in an open-handed way. And to think otherwise is probably a combination of ignorance and arrogance and aloofness, <laughs> innocence. Um, but yeah, I think this is often what happens is something's built for a good reason and then it becomes the law yeah, uh, instead of a guide. That's why I'm so intrigued by adoption is that it feels like that kind of what he did was the antithesis of that. Like while he had his convictions and things, he was able to, to be a compass, as you said, in a way that um, didn't constrain you, but that was helpful for you. And that his model of ministry and his theology, like what, a, like those sorts of things didn't become solidified in a sort of way where you're bound to it, but instead um, that you're being empowered to, to think for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's good. Um, so when I first uh, became aware of you was when a story got written, I think maybe it was a religious news service, if I remember right. Yeah. Yeah. Jonathan Merritt. Merritt did. Okay. So our friend Jonathan wrote a story about you um, and about your church becoming affirming around uh, empowering LGBTQ in all places in the life of the church. And, um, and you were one of the first sort of larger evangelical churches to take that step. And, um, and I remember like reaching out to you to have some conversations about that, about like what the implications had been in your church. And so I'm kind of curious for you, what, what was the result of making that decision for your church? What was the result of that decision for you in the sort of like broader church landscape? Um, like, did you lose friendships? Did you lose invitations? Were you fully embraced? Were people like, Hey, we see things differently, but whatever, it's cool. What was that experience? Really? <laughs> uh, well, I'll talk first about the impact on our congregation. Um, 
one of the things that I think has been central to our culture is we're not responsible for what people believe. We're responsible for what people hear. And we saw a pattern that, you know, some people would come around our church and after a season, it depends, you know, how long it was for different people. There was a sense of like, Hey, we don't, you haven't told us what to believe. I had a conversation with one guy in particular and he's like, I need you to tell me what to believe. Hmm. And that's just never been a part of our culture. We want to invite you toward questions. And we believe that if we're asking really helpful questions, love-filled questions, we're going to be led toward deeper, uh, deeper questions. And I think questions are how we learn. So that, that was in place already. There was never a, you have to agree with me. And I've said multiple times from our platform that if being a part of our church means that you have to agree with me. That's not a church that's a cult and you should leave. So I say that because that existed in leadership. I have, I could name several people in leadership to this day with whom I have significant theological disagreements. Um, but we believed we're, we're to pursue, I mean, we're just to pursue unity and that can feel like a cheap throwaway word these days. But it's important, like, this is what Jesus prayed for the church. It's the only thing he prayed for the church, according to John. And Jesus prays this in a room with a bunch of teenagers, one of whom is a zealot and one of whom is a tax collector, which means the tax collector is the kind of guy that the zealot wants to literally kill. And when I say kill, they would slit their throats in case you're listening and wondering how they would kill them. So Jesus didn't seem too hyped on getting everybody to agree. Uh, on different political and social issues that existed in his day, or even theological issues. So that was kind of the base that we set. So when we announced it, the the immediate response is we had two people leave. Um, two people. And two people, yeah. And we That's said amazing. that we were going to invite everybody into a uh, five-week learning group. And... The learning group was done by committee, community, that I wasn't, it wasn't just me lecturing. Interestingly enough, the one week, I actually just, I, I did a workshop recently and I talked about this. This is a failure. The one week where I like loaded up, I mean, I had just this theological tank that was going to wow everybody and absolutely change everybody's mind. It was the one week of that five weeks that like bombed. People hated it. Even people who agreed with me were like, dude, you were like, you were like a really slick lawyer. People who disagreed with me got angry. Um, so I learned something through that. But uh, in time, we had, I would say maybe 10 to 15% of our community leave in the first six months. One group, there was one group that was kind of connected to this one influential individual. And they left, there was about 40, 45 people. That was just one foul swoop. Our giving dropped. But what happened is we committed to not dwell on the negatives. And so I've seen people who've gone through some sort of controversy who talk about what so-and-so is saying about me and what they said about us. And, and we decided to give that no airtime. What we wanted to do was say, let's celebrate what's happening in our midst. Hmm. Um, and so we, the year after we came out for full inclusion, we had our best year of giving ever in the history of our church. So I've really? jokingly said to pastors over the years, if you want to increase your giving, just come out for full inclusion. 
Uh, <laughs> that's, been, was, that's been a lot of people's experience. Yeah. 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 So for us, what happened is by pointing toward those positive stories, we gave permission for people to, to approach us and say things like, I mean, the number of times I've heard this, um, Hey, my kid came out as gay and loves Jesus. And you've given us a place to explore both their sexuality and their spirituality. Um, there was the, the, the other thing that I recognized is there's a lot of people who grew up in an evangelical-ish environment, you know, the familiar songs, the, just the vibe, you know, like we don't do the lights and the smoke and all that, but, um, but we definitely have an evangelical-ish feel. And for people to realize like, oh, I can go to a place that feels like home and I can be embraced for who I am. Yeah, That was also overwhelming. And what we recognized is as a community, it drew us closer because we rec- we did not demand full agreement with our decision. We, inv- we, b- we believed that we needed everybody to be a part of this, to learn how to live together. And that would be hopefully the bigger message caught up in the whole thing. And so that's what we've seen happen. We've seen um, that more people have left over the years, but more people have come over the years. So it's been a interesting season for us. It'll be four years that we, four years ago in January that we did this, but it's, it's been, um, yeah, it's, it's been a wonderful thing for us. And what we didn't expect is that when you throw your doors open a bit wider, and this is probably the biggest thing for us, you more people than you expect will come in. So inclusion Mm -hmm. begets inclusion. Um, and the other, the other piece too, is once you, once we made that decision, what we told everyone without saying it, and I think we didn't even know we were telling people this, was any question you have, any belief that you hold, um, it doesn't matter. You're still welcome to come in and join our community. Um, and the safety that people felt almost overnight because of our decision and direction was was really overwhelming. And was that like, as you start like opening up the floodgates of like, oh my gosh, there's all these different sorts of people coming with all sorts of different beliefs. They don't fit in the box that our churches typically fit in. Was that like overwhelming for you? Was it like, I don't know what to do with all of this or did it, were you the kind of person that you just felt like, Oh, I'm at home. These are my people. Yeah. Much more the latter. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Because I had changed, my heart had changed with regard to the LGBTQ conversation years before we made the move. And in part because of process and in part because of my own fear of saying what I believed publicly, mm-hmm. it, took a, it took a long season. And um, so, yeah, I, I, in, in that, I, to this day, I think that my one regret is I didn't say something sooner because I know that I was, I participated in hurting more people than needed to be hurt. Sure. Um, but the, the night that I said from the platform that I had shifted and that we were welcoming, um, the place actually started cheering hmm. and it's on video somewhere. And I look off to my left and my wife was sitting there and she mouthed the words to me. I told you so. <laughs> um, I like and I, chills. I, in the video, like my whole body, like I was sitting on a stool, but it's like I collapsed almost. And I just started sobbing. Um, 
because there was like this thing in me where I was like, I have to be honest. I have to say this. I ha-. And I had all of this fear connected to that. But once I finally said it, and I'm not even sure if people had have cheered, I don't, uh, if they had not have cheered, I don't think it would have been different. It was this release of energy and honesty yeah. and integrity yeah. and authenticity. And so to see that, that move that I made and that our church made, people responded to that with their own authenticity. It was like, man, I'm, this is it. I'm home. This is it. We're doing something here. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me, um, and I was talking with uh, uh, Dr. David Gushy about this a little while ago. Oh, yeah. This is like LGBTQ inclusion has become the new dividing line litmus test in the church, right? That it's like. Yes, it has. Um, this is the thing that gets you thrown out of evangelical circles. Like you can, there's room for all sorts of disagreements about all kinds of other things about divorce and remarriage about women in the church about end times theology unless you're a part of the group that you were a part of like there's room for like (laughs) right all sorts of like hey the church has is this big tent umbrella and there's a lot of room for understanding these passages in a lot of different ways and right now this is the one where it's like no there's there's not room for understanding these in different kinds of ways and um, I was thinking about another mutual friend of ours, uh, Matthew Vines, yes. who says that one of the things that happens, he do, and he he does a lot of, he wrote a great book, uh, for those of you who don't know, called God and the Gay Christian, and does a lot of work with churches, church leaders, and, um, and families where people are coming out, church leaders that are wrestling with this, churches that are trying to move towards some level of inclusion. And I remember one of the things that he talks about is he says, when a pastor comes out as affirming, one of the things that often happens is he gets or she gets kicked out of all the circles that they've been involved in. All of like their college friends, seminary friends, all the church circle, leadership circles that they've been a part of, all the all the people that had embraced them where they found community, they're no longer welcome there. And they go into this sort of like nomad space. And the one group that will accept them are the progressive Christians. And so that's where they start to find community. And one of the things they said is that, um, is that what will often happen is because your community shapes so much of how you think and, and your theology that that pastor will end up like shifting on all sorts of other things over time that they probably would have never shifted on otherwise, but those are the Mm. only people who have embraced them. Yeah. Um, I kind of bring that up because I think what's interesting for me about what you've done is you've tried to maintain this tension in your leadership with both people who are affirming and non-affirming. And so you have not created a church that has moved towards inclusion and then said, well, if your theology, if you end up at this place that is non-affirming, there is no room for you here. Um, And you've instead tried to pursue unity. Um, and I imagine that that's a lot more difficult for the non-affirming person in your space mm-hmm. because they're having to give some things up to, to be in your space. Could you talk a little bit about what that looks like and how, how you're able to hold that tension? Yeah, I don't, you know, when you say, what does it look like? I don't know that I can give you a descriptor because it has to be, it demands deep relationships. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's less strategic, more a commitment to vulnerability. It's less a plan and more a 
a willingness to move toward the other. And one of the things I see, I mean, obviously, using the word unity now, four years ago, it wasn't a buzzword. Now it is, <laughs> right? Because we're so divided. Um, but one of the things that I see when you use this example, and I hadn't thought of it the way that you just reflected on it, on what happens is we almost overnight, I received a thousand invitations from uh, people in the progressive Christian uh, realm. I don't know why I use the word realm, but, <laughs> um, and I, so, and I responded to them cause I did, there was a lot of relationships, uh, lost for me and probably about 20 minutes in my first meeting, I was like, this is not my tribe. Hmm. I love them. And there's, I mean, I have a lot of great friends in that would be label themselves progressive Christians, but I, I was like, this is not my tribe. And I think the the conviction, maybe I would say, that kind of underscores our desire for unity or our commitment to unity, because sometimes I don't desire it, quite honestly. It would be so much easier to be with people that just where we all agree. Um, but the I would say the commitment to it is what I see both actually in the progressive world and in the conservative world, because um, they're very much alike in how they hold their beliefs, is... They, there's this longing to silence. There's a, there's a, um, a desire to forget a desire to push away. And I think it's Parker Palmer talks about this. Um, there is no wholeness without a willingness to embrace everything. And so you hear Richard Rohr's, uh, what the book that really kind of lit his career, everything belongs Parker Palmer's book on the brink of everything. Um, that I think there's this sense in which for us, we're like, I think we have to embrace as many people as will come because this is what wholeness looks like. Not that we all agree, but that we're committed to, to growth and to wholeness and to healing in our own lives so that we can be that in the world. And I, uh, and by the way, I mean, I sound <laughs> in some way, and I feel like I should say this, I can sound right now like really holy, like a holy person. <laughs> if you knew me really well, for those listening, I am not, there's a lot of people I would just as soon punch in the face as embrace. So this is, it's hard work. It really is hard and difficult work. Um, but I think that basis is if we're going to be whole within ourselves and we're going to embrace all the parts of our journey, even the parts we want to forget, we have to do the same thing then in the world in which we live. And the way we see it at DCC is that we ought to be an example of what can happen in the world where people on either side of the aisle, people from different walks of life, people from different socioeconomic places, they can actually be together. And there's so many things I've seen the church overcome with regard to disagreeing theologically or even with social issues. And I, I do believe it can happen with regard to LGBTQ um, uh, equity and equality because it's happening in our congregation. And mm. we have people in leadership that they would be in a different place than I am. Um, and I think so often what we do is we make one issue the thing, which is unhealthy because in our closest relationships, there's never one thing that binds yeah. us together. There's multiple and there's multiple things that we can disagree on. So I think for us, that's kind of where we're at. I don't know if that answers your question. Um, no, it's really good. And it actually brings up another one just because of something you briefly said. Um, I assume 
that there's people who are part of your congregation who who voted for Trump and who are who are on that um, on a uh, on that side of the political spectrum. And you were even in some ways vocal about some things that you disagreed with out on social media um, in that space. How like just recently with the election and with all of that that's gone on, how have you maintained that kind of tension there? And where is there this line to like, hey, there are these things that I need to speak prophetically about and some folks are going to get on board with that. And some folks are like, I'm not there with you. And how are you able to maintain unity in the church around some of that? And even where it feels like at times, maybe some of it um, becomes social justice issues or things like, yeah, am I, I'm kind of rambling, but. I don't know if you read my contract, but to be on the podcast, I said nothing about Trump. <laughs> I mean, I can take all this out if you want. <laughs> no, it's fine. Okay. No, it's there was this was actually a conversation we just had with our leadership about um, Trump, Trumpism, partisanship, yeah. Republican, Democrat, all mean very different things. And one of the things that we're recognizing in our context is. I'm not actually sure people are as partisan as we think. I think, mm-hmm. quoting N.T. Wright, the church has abdicated its place as a prophetic community and allowed the media to become the prophetic community. And uh, what I have not heard him say that. I love that. I was at this gathering that he spoke at. It was a gift. And okay. he was asked about Trump. Quoting N.T. Wright when I was hanging out with him is what you're saying. Uh, I was in, it was a big room. So I like, you know. <laughs> There was, there was, we were actually at lunch together. No, <laughs> um, but it's interesting. And again, both progressive and conservative, look at the messaging coming from some of the biggest influencers in the more progressive world and in the more conservative world and overlay that with the, the messaging coming from more liberal media streams and more conservative media streams. And I think he's right. And I, because of that, I don't think we're as partisan in our words, I think we're trained to hear through partisan ears. Interesting. And so I, um, th- th- this is one of the conversations we just had is what do you do when 126 congressional leaders sign on with a lawsuit coming from the state of Texas that the Supreme Court, who has a conservative majority, summarily throws out because it has no standing? Do you speak up against that? Do you speak out? And if so, does that become partisan or are we hearing it with partisan ears? And so for us, what we've, we have to, and this is a consistent thing. So the unity over uniformity that we talk about, it's not like we say that and everyone's like, oh, harumph, harumph, let's do it. It's, this is a constant circling back. Mm -hmm. Um, But for us, what we've begun to recognize is Unity over uniformity doesn't mean you sit on your hands and keep your mouth shut. It means that we have to develop the inner resources to be able to listen, to be curious. Um, One of our uh, core qualities is what we call it, that we are constantly coming back to in our leadership is curiosity. Seek to understand, ask questions, um, get curious about the root of the question being asked. And so that for us is more and more like, Hey, I know if I, for example, when it like, I'm very outspoken about immigration, my dad's a Latino immigrant. Um, and so for me, I want to speak out against, uh, against anything that's 
I think is anti-immigrant. Um, and what we're, what I'm asking for from my peers is I'm going to ask you to listen and to re, to respect, even if you disagree with it, respectfully disagree and we can have a dialogue and I have to sit back and give you the same bandwidth, the same, uh, margin that you're going to give me. And I think one of the ways we found that's helpful to talk about this is we really work hard to get out of the media soundbite culture and, and really get down to, okay, where is a place of agreement and how can we start the conversation oh. from there? So an example of that is we preached, I don't know how long ago, we did a whole thing on, on weekends or on Sundays around immigration. And the first question we asked was, can we, can we decipher, can we discern from the sacred text how God feels about immigrants? Hmm, hmm. And so we just read all the verses where God talks about loving immigrants and all the examples of God commanding his people to care for the immigrant and Jesus using care for the immigrant as one of the central things that's a sign of people who are committed to him in his Matthew 25 parable. And once we established, okay, it seems like God loves the immigrant. We then said very clearly, now, some of you are thinking, whoa, 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 we need, we need borders. We need a wall. We need this. And I'm like, there's, there's a place for conversation about that. Some of you are like, no, 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 no. We, we need, um, you know, we need a way for people to move towards citizenship. We need these paths. We, and I'm like, there's a, there's a place for that. But until we grapple with what does it look like for us to imitate the heart of God and allow that to bleed out into our world, conversations about politics are secondary. So we'll always try to come back to the heart of God, the heart of Jesus. What does the sacred text say? Because we're, pardon me, I'm like, we're Christians. So it seems like a good place to start. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think that has allowed the conversation to be less divisive um, and more an engagement with one another and engagement with the heart of God and engagement with the text. It's so good. That's so good. Um, all right. So one of the things that you say about your church is that you are a holistic Christian missional community to sort of like use the, the fancy words that you use to define yourselves. What does that mean? How does that sort of like play itself out and how you operate as a church? Yeah. Well, one of the things that's interesting when it comes, like I'll start, go in order. So holistic, and I'll try to make it brief, but one of the things I know to be true about us as human beings is we see ourselves as separate and apart from the rest of uh, the more than human community, as my spiritual director refers to it, trees, rocks, plants, animals. Um, and there is a difference in that, according to the creation poem, we're the only ones with created in the image of God, and we're the only ones with consciousness for, uh, as others might say it, but there is a connection to it. Um, we come from the dirt. We're going back to the dirt. All things have the light, breath of life in them. There's even this really curious thing in Genesis chapter one, where God speaks to the animals. And it's huh. a really bizarro thing. God says to the, to the man and woman, I give you every seed bearing plant on earth for food. And then he says to the creatures who have the breath of life in them, and I give you all green plants on earth for food. Like, so there's this, when we talk about holistic, we're like, it's not just us getting our souls out of here to yep. heaven, as we talked about earlier. And, and there is a sense in which there's a physicality to spirituality. 
that our bodies do in fact matter, that this world matters, that this, this earth and these animals matter. And environmental um, degradation, you know, I think because we've made so much of the story escapist, I think it's why so few Christians historically have really pounded the pulpit, so to speak, around environmental issues, Wendell Berry notwithstanding. So that would be this holistic piece. Christian is, we're unapologetically Christian. And some people hear that and might think, oh my gosh, this is like still a Bible-toting evangelical, or oh my goodness, is he Baptist, or is he... um, But I think what we often overlook is that the majority of the population in this world that identifies as Christian is in the global South. Mm -hmm. Um, These are people of color, the black and brown folks. Um, And that the story of Christianity, yes, there is the awful parts. And we need to own those. We need to talk about those. We need to point toward those. Um, What it does for us is it doesn't allow us to say, well, I'm not that kind of Christian. Because people associate Christianity however they want to associate it. But there's also a breadth and depth of the Christian tradition. Um, some of this came out of, I, I lead trips every other year, actually with Ed Dobson's son, Kent, to the Middle East. And you see the breadth and depth of Christianity expressed, especially in Jerusalem, that this is an Eastern religion, first and foremost. It uh, trended toward Western thinking because of the Great Schism and all that stuff. But for us, we're like, no, this is this is a massive tradition that we want to explore together. And so we're we're in the midst of it, and we're going to add our little piece to it. But this is way bigger than us. And then um, the third piece, missional, is just this idea that you know we the, the phrase that we use now is we practice love in the ways of Jesus. That Jesus didn't come and talk about love; Jesus came and embodied it, hmm. and whether we want to say that practice of love is justice or social justice, it was all those things. It was him playing with kids when the disciples are trying to keep the kids away. It was him stopping when there was a woman who had a period that wouldn't stop and stopping the whole crowd and referring to her as a, as a daughter, this woman who had experienced this marginalization. It's him going into the temple and whooping, (laughs) whooping up on people (laughs) as a prophetic act. It's, the, the, this the generate the, the generativeness we see in Jesus that like the fuel of all of that the engine of that we believe to be love because he is the face of God who is love so for us that's where th- this idea of missional is we want to practice love in his ways that's really good that's really helpful and so I wanted you to talk about that a bit just as a way of giving a little bit of like well not every church that would kind of fit within this post-evangelical space would identify in the same sorts of ways. I think it gives a little bit of like tangibleness to, to some of the practices and some of the orientation of your church. Um, and so as we think about sort of like the broader post-evangelical movement, and I don't even know that we fully know all of what that is. Some people are trying to start putting some definitions around it. David Gushy's tried to put some stuff around it. I think you and I have had some conversations around that. Um, what what do you see happening in this space? What's, what's sort of unique about it? How is it different from an evangelical sort of church, or how is it different from a more progressive kind of church? What, what are you seeing as kind of the uniqueness of this space? That's a great question. Thanks. And it's, myself. it's funny cause it's, <laughs> it's, 
it's hard to pin down because I think there's a lot of people trying to answer the question. Yeah. And everyone's answering it a little bit differently because it's something that's still taking shape. Um, and I'm not familiar. I have huge respect for David Gushy. Um, not familiar. I know he's written some, but I'm not familiar with it. So I'll have to go back and did you have him on the podcast? I did. You should listen to it. Oh, nice. it's good. I will it's two, for sure. Two part interview. Oh, nice. I'll definitely listen to it. Um, yeah, I think the things that I'm seeing is to borrow the word. You're the, you're the first one I heard say this, but it, I've used it ever since. Um, people feel ecclesiologically homeless that there's a sense in which I can't go back to where I came from and whatever the progressive thing is, 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 and is becoming, that doesn't feel like home either. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the encouraging things I see is there's not a hard cynicism and hatred and a disdain for the evangelical church that we've all come from. Yes. Like for me, I'm grateful that I was introduced to the Bible and Jesus at a young age, and I'm grateful for the for the moral foundation I was given. Now, some of that was given with shame and guilt, which wasn't healthy, but it saved me from making a lot of bad decisions. Um, so I think that's one thing I see that I appreciate. Um, one of the things I'm seeing, and it's it's a really it's it's not really clear, but I also see a hesitancy to turn Trumpism into Bidenism mm. to, to mm. borrow uh, Beth Moore's recent tweet. Yes. <laughs> um, that there's still this hope of like, I think politics, yes, is important, but we can't just basically go to another party and say, this is the way. Um, my friend, John Huckins in the global immersion group, if, yep. if, if you're familiar with him, he has, they're doing some incredible stuff on this right now about the uh, conflicted allegiance, um, which is helpful. And I think that's one of the things I'm seeing is a recognition of waking up to some of what Brian Zond is doing. This, there's a kingdom at hand, and this is our first allegiance. This is our first commitment. Um, I see a really encouraging, um, renewed, I'll say it that way, curiosity about the Bible. Mm -hmm. Of, you know, you talked about Rob Bell earlier. He said once, give yourself to this book because it's far more explosive than you, than you could ever imagine. And so this is why, you know, every sermon at our church, it begins, at least I begin with, if you have, if you want to follow along, this is the text we're going to read today, because that's where we're going to look at. Um, and so I still see, and that's very evangelical, by the way, that, you know, it's called biblicism in the evangelical world, but I think there's this um, renewed interest in it. But the the caveat to that is, there's also a recognition that, in the words of Peter Enns, the Bible actually decenters itself. Mm. The Bible actually points away from itself as I'm not the authority here. Yeah, yep. That's that's the heart of the heart of God's the authority. Um, there's a sense in which, like, we're able to approach it and find new things. We don't have to play by all like theology doesn't come first. In the words of Stanley Grenz, he says theology is a second order discipline. So I think some of that renewal, and this is where some of the conflict comes in of, oh, you've thrown the Bible away. No. Like when it comes to the LGBTQ thing, I actually shifted on that because of the Bible, not in spite of it. Yep. Um, so I think there's also a renewal, as we talked about earlier, in, in social issues and issues around justice. 
and I'm seeing a growing, um, a lot of people who are coming to it who are not just soundbiting the media, but are getting more interested in uh, what does the Bible say about this? What does the heart of God have to say about this? Latasha Morrison is an incredible example of this in the way that she's leading and speaking and thinking. Um, so those would be, I think, some of the highlights for me. And I think what I'm encouraged by and even encouraged by the work, work that you're doing, Mike, is these people are beginning to find each other. Yep. Um, and realize like, oh, we're not alone. And oh, we don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. There's still a lot of good here. And uh, I'm excited about the future of of where this is going because it feels, I'd say it this way, we're not tearing everything down so we don't have anything left to build with. We're remodeling the place because we realize whatever the bones were of this house, um, they got us to where we are. And sure, we might blow out some walls and maybe pop a top on it and I'm going to take the metaphor too far here, but um, we can still do something with what we were given. And I'm, I really am. I'm grateful for what I was given. And with all of the wounding that the church has given me over the years um, and all the disappointments and frustrations, um, it's led me to where I am now. Yep. So I don't want to throw, throw out any of that. I don't think God wastes any of that. That's so good. I love that metaphor too of uh, we're remodeling, we're not tearing the whole thing down. I think that's a really helpful picture. Um, and and just so just so it's it's on the record, the the phrase ecclesiologically homeless came from our mutual friend Jason Miller. He's who. First oh, is he the one who said? Yep, he said it to me. And I then, thought it was him. Yeah. Okay. I've used it so many times. I mean, I feel like it's mine by now. But um, dude, you should just copyright that stuff, trademark it. I should. <laughs> That's, <laughs> um, but so for those who are listening that we've been, as I've been, uh, kind of poking into this space a bit, we've been picking up a bunch of listeners who feel like they're ecclesiologically homeless and have been reaching mm -hmm. out and been hearing from some of them. And so you and I next year are going to launch some cohorts, um, where we want to like help people find each other, like help create some friendships, help create some shared learning, some, uh, space there. Like what can I ask you? I, I didn't really set you up for this, but like, what do you imagine like comes out of that cohort or what do you imagine? Like, what are your hopes for that sort of space? Yeah. Well, so I've at the risk of sounding like a commercial, um, <laughs> I've actually done a few retreats and I just am wrapping up my first online workshop. And so I can say, because I think the cohort thing is going to really, my hope is the same thing in that. Um, I do this thing called the Blueprint Retreat. And the idea is let's begin thinking about what we can build. Hmm. And we're not going to, like, I don't believe I'm going to build it in my lifetime. I'll say it that way. Not because, because uh, I, I think it's still becoming something. So the blueprint retreat, the, this idea, this image of the blueprint is let's sketch something that we can hand off to the next generation. Like I want my kids to have kind of this open source faith, if that makes sense, where they receive something that enables them to create something. Okay. And I think deconstruction has its place. Um, I think deconstruction for many is still important. 
But what I don't see a lot of right now is people coming along saying, okay, 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 yeah, we should definitely rip out the kitchen and throw it all away because it's harmful and toxic and all these other things. Um, but man, now we have this like big, massive, empty room that, what are we going to do with it? And that's kind of my hope um, in, in the way that we're teaching at DCC and the retreats that we're doing in the, in the workshops and in the, these cohorts is how do we begin to bring people along? Um, because I'm sure some, a lot of your listeners are probably thinking to themselves like, oh my gosh, yes, I have so many ideas. Awesome. Let's get together and let's begin thinking about how we can all contribute to this thing. Cause it's going to be, it's going to be better when, when there's more voices, when there's diverse voices, when there's, um, perspectives that I, I am unable to see because of who I am and what my background has been. Um, and so that's my hope is that we would be those who actually begin faithfully sketching out plans, maybe even laying some groundwork. Um, but ultimately I think for me, like my dream for, for myself and even for anyone who's listening is that we would have the satisfaction when we're toward the end of our lives of recognizing like our grandkids are enjoying something and they're still building on it. And we mm. were the ones who began to breathe life into this. Um, that would be my hope. Yeah. You got me fired up. I'm in, I'm in, I'll join <laughs> it. <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah. I, in all honesty, if you're listening and you feel like you're in that space, you're ecclesiologically homeless and you're trying to find some community. You're trying to find some people to to link arms with and say, like, let's figure out how to do church differently. Let's figure out how to like remodel together. We would love to have you join us. So um, please reach out. It's Mike at MikeGoldsworthy.com. And I'll um, I'll follow up with you and we'll like schedule a time to chat and get to know each other a bit and talk about like how how we can do that. So I'd love to have you be a part of that. Um Hey, really quick, I just want to ask you one more question before before we, mm -hmm. we wrap up here. Um, I hear on a regular basis from people who are looking for churches like DCC, um, churches that are that are um, inclusive, churches that are working towards justice, churches that are taking the scriptures seriously, and that are like wrestling with the Bible and saying like, this has implications on our lives, let's dive into the text and figure it out, that are trying to be a Jesus people. And they're often not finding that in their local context. And so, yeah. and you probably hear from people like this as well on a regular basis is my guess. When somebody reaches out to you and they're like, Hey, I can't find a church like DCC where I'm at. Um, what, like, what kinds of advice are you giving them? Oh man. I think identifying with their plight is a big deal. Hmm. Um, because it hurts like people, I think we're learning in the pandemic for so many people have been like, well, I don't need church. We're hearing the opposite. Like we, there's something about being in a room. Like for me, my favorite part is watching Eucharist every week. I miss mm -hmm. that so freaking much. Um, so yeah, identifying with that, that loss, you know, um, I think one of the things this pandemic has created um, is online communities. So we have a whole group of people in Chicago that have started, quote, going to DCC, okay. which means yep. they get together 
Um, they watch our weekend gathering and then they discuss it. I just had a great conversation yesterday with a woman from uh, just outside of Austin who leads uh, a, a congregation there called Icon Church, E-I-K-O-N. And um, they're actually moving to that model where they're going to create smaller communities who will gather together to watch the weekend gathering. And then in groups of 30 to, I don't know, I can't remember the max, like 30 to 50, we'll watch that. So I think this is new for me because I'd never thought of it before. But what I've realized is when I get an email from someone who says, hey, I live in such and such a city, is there a church like DCC or South Bend City Church or Waco or WBC Waco, whatever, these great communities around the country. Spiro Day is another awesome one if you live in Nashville. Um, if they don't have that in proximity to them with the proliferation now of churches online, and like for us, we're going to stay online um, and we're going to live stream for the foreseeable future, even when we resume in-person gatherings. Who is it around you in your circle, whatever city you're living in, that you can say, hey, I found this place online. We have the same conviction, the same longing, the same desire. What if we got together, watched this thing online, and then had discussions about it or had a meal afterward? Uh, and the nice thing is, because it's online, you can do this whenever you want. Um, so like for us, one of the things that we've reinstated is it's called Analog, which is a guide for further resources questions and discussion around the sermon because we know there's so many people watching this in pots like small pockets of community around the country so that they can yeah. access that and use it so that might be something for your listeners to consider of um you know who and the live stream doesn't have to be like a highly produced thing it can just be a really healthy thing um good shepherd out of new york city is another one who's doing incredible um incredible stuff and so yeah that would be the, the two things I would say, if you're listening and you feel that I'm, I can genuinely say, I'm sorry. Um, no. Because yeah, I, I know the pain of that loneliness. Um, and I felt it acutely in the first 18 to 24 months after oh. the move that we made. Um, but technology can be your friend and it's not, I wouldn't do it in isolation because then the community comes through the conversations you can have. Yeah. That's good. That's a good suggestion. I like that a lot. Um, hey, I just wanted to tell you, I am so grateful for you. I'm really grateful for oh, thank you. Not only like the way that you are leading in your church and then beyond your church, but I'm really grateful for your friendship. Your friendship's been a real gift to me the last few years, and um, and I'm one of those people who like as my theology shifted that there like was just loss of friendships and loss of like peers and people who had been with me on journeys that were no longer going to be with me there. Mm -hmm. And, um, and my wife and I realized, you know, at some point that we're like, Oh, we have to like rebuild some friendships. Mm -hmm. And you've been, um, like, while we obviously live in different States, you've been a really sweet friendship for me and it's been a real gift. And so, I just really appreciate you. I'm really grateful for you and I'm grateful for um, the work that you do. Thanks. Oh, thanks brother. I appreciate that. Yeah. And I'm, uh, I'm excited for the days ahead. You're like I said to you, I think it was just last week. You're, you're, you're doing incredibly important work um, thanks. in giving, you're, you're building homes for people to, uh, to find and to grow in. So thank thanks, you. Thanks man. for having me on. It's been fun. Yeah. Thanks. Oh, Hey, where, where do people find your church? Where do people find you and your podcast? 
Yeah. So our website is incredibly creative. Denverchurch.org. Perfect. <laughs> uh, I have a website called, it's michael-hidalgo.com. Don't forget the dash. Um, there was because a church one time. one of you? No, there was a guy, I guess, who's like a, was a fashion photographer and he had oh. a lingerie, <laughs> a lingerie display. And I was speaking at a church once and they put the wrong email address in there and somebody called me. They're like, you might want to get a hold of this church. Uh, so Michael-Hidalgo, H-I-D-A-L-G-O.com. Uh, and then the podcast is just Changing Faith, the Changing Faith podcast with Michael Hidalgo. And uh, yeah, you can find uh, stuff I've written projects I'm working on retreats, all that stuff at the, at the website. So it'd be fun to keep you. And if anyone's listening, they can just email me right off the website. I do respond to emails. Um, I'd love to connect. That's how we connected. Oh yeah. There you go. That's cold, cold called you or cold emailed you. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Well, Hey man, thanks for being on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely brother. Thanks so much. Well, another good time with getting to introduce you to one of my friends who um, I just love Michael. I love the way that he thinks. He's so thoughtful. I love what he has been creating over there at Denver Community Church. It's really a beautiful community. I got to worship with them a year or so ago and just loved being with them. And I hope that this gives you just another picture of another kind of church that's trying to live in this this space, this space where where some of us feel ecclesiologically homeless. And so um, if that's you, if you're leading in that space as a pastor or leader in church, I would really would love to connect with you. Hit me up at mike at mikegoldsworthy.com. You can email me there, and I would love to just get to know you a bit. I would love to share some stories, hear your story, hear a bit more about your church and the work that you're doing there. And as I uh, wrap all this up for the holiday season, we'll take a little break for a bit. I just wanted to give one last little reminder out there for any of you who would like to help support the work that I'm doing in the post-evangelical space, where uh, over this next year, we're going to start building out uh, some space to help Uh, post-evangelical leaders connect with one another so they don't feel so alone to help create space for resources and sharing of resources and creation of resources and to help catalyze this movement of churches and so to help the churches that already exist to continue to move towards more and more health and then to help new churches that want to be birthed or churches that are trying to transition in different ways and so um, so I want to be a part of helping all of that and If you feel compelled by the things that you've been hearing or you're just like, hey, Mike, I just believe in you and the work that you're doing, I would be so grateful if you would consider giving a year-end gift to help that out. Or um, several of you have committed to give monthly for a little while now, and I'm so grateful for that. And so if you want to be a part of that, I'll put all of the all of the information in the show notes but you write a check to we ministries we ministries and you can send it to me send it to mike goldsworthy at 6285 east spring street number 474 and that's in long beach california 90808 so friends i'm so grateful for you i'm grateful that you would make time to like this is over an hour now You'd make time for over an hour to to listen to this stuff. 
I'm so grateful for those of you that I get to be in conversation with. I'd love to hear from you. Um, if anything is sort of like being brought up or stirred in you from that, I'd love to make time for us to just connect. Um, but beyond all of that, I hope you all have a great Christmas. Grace and peace to you all.